0: Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, remembering Tulsa and efforts to lift black businesses and communities today. Biden's $6 trillion budget and plans for racial equity and Naomi Osaka's choice for mental health above trophies and millions. We'll talk about it, stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. In a week of remembrance, President Joe Biden visited Tulsa, Oklahoma, and spoke on the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre that destroyed a prosperous Black community there 100 years ago. He noted the root cause of the destruction and its reverberations through today.
1: Millions of white Americans belonged to the Klan, and they weren't even embarrassed by it. They were proud of it. And that hate became embedded systematically and systemically in our laws and our culture. We do ourselves no favors by pretending none of this ever happened, or it doesn't impact us today, because it does still impact us today. We should know the good, the bad everything. That's what great nations do. They come to terms with their dark sides. And we're a great nation. The only way to build a common ground is to truly repair and to rebuild. I come here to help fill the
0: silence, because in silence, wounds deepen. What does his visit say about America's readiness for racial healing and reconciliation? I'd like to welcome today's roundtable Patrick Hanna of the Black Caucus uh, Corporate Roundtable, political analyst Steve Rau and Dr. Henry McCoy, director of entrepreneurship at North Carolina Central University. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Let me just open with you, Dr. McCoy. When you hear those remarks, what does it tell you? What do you make of it?
2: Well, I think it's incredibly important that uh, President Biden actually is admitting um, the past wrongs because, as he said, it, it's important to, to if you're going to get to repair uh, and rebuilding, you actually have to admit that there was a wrongdoing. So I think it was a huge step. Uh, as, as you know, he was the first president to actually acknowledge this and this uh, massacre from 100 years ago. So I think it's an important step.
0: And we certainly know that, the, that Tulsa is not the only black Wall Street, there are many uh, black Wall Streets in America, including our own Durham, Charlotte, even Asheville. So when you think about what he said and um, what's happened in Tulsa, what, has, what is it that has happened to these black Wall Streets in North Carolina? They're not here any longer either.
2: Well, interestingly enough, um, the reason why so many people know about Tulsa is not because of essentially how it, uh, you know, how it lived, but how it died. And you know, we have to really think about that um, you know, 100 years ago, how it was destroyed. But there were dozens of other black wall streets all across the United States, across North Carolina, that also were destroyed. They may not have been destroyed the same way um, Tulsa was. But uh, Wilmington in 1898 actually was, but many more were destroyed through highway systems disinvestment, um, you know, gentrification and things of that nature. And so it's very important that we understand that there were prosperous black communities all across the United States, all across North Carolina, and one way or another, they were destroyed over time.
0: And Patrick, if this statement that Biden made can be seen as a first step toward repairing and rebuilding, uh, where would you say we are in the process and what's next?
3: Yeah, so excellent point, Deborah. One of the things that I notice about this ubiquitous moment that we're in, that we're starting to see uh, a more larger diverse population of people that are really leaning in and wanting to have a conversation about racial equity. And that, that really gives me a lot of hope and uh, op- optimism about the future. Uh, but as we just heard uh, from Dr. McCoy, the reality is uh, that from 1898 to the 1960s, uh, uh, the black community was thriving. And the fundamental thing that changed that was Uh, the impact of jim crow laws and so i think what we really need to recognize uh there's been a lot of progress that's been made and i think we should acknowledge that but i think this new generation of leaders and activists are looking for tangible concrete results and therefore we do need to change the conversation to not just uh diversity and inclusion but also equity and participation in the in the greater aspect of the american
0: experience You know, Steve, Patrick has talked about uh, equity, but also diversity and inclusion. What can you tell us about uh, the importance of the president's visit, not just for uh, black uh, communities and business owners, but other communities of color who are business owners, who, who are in search of equity today?
4: Well, I mean, Deborah, I think it's just uh, the president's visit, first of all, the Greenwood and his remarks, I think, are just unbelievable test of his leadership as a president, a president with true purpose, um, I think, who's really come to change this country for the better. And, you know, my, my biggest take is the greatest disease that's ever faced this country in the midst of a pandemic, as we look at disease and talk about disease, is racism. And you can't diagnose it on a medical exam, but it's existed. And just by denying that it existed, that we don't have a problem uh, is why we're so far behind. So, in terms of inclusion for small businesses, I think it's very important that you, know, you just look at Black minority businesses, Asian businesses. You know, are they getting their fair share of PPE loans? Are they getting you know their fair share of dollars that they can thrive and? The president, I think, is, is going a long way with just you know, his efforts of you know, increasing federal contracting by 50 percent for small and disadvantaged businesses. Right now, it's about 15 percent. That could create about $100 billion worth of you know, income for businesses. So to answer your question, I think it's so important. We need venture capital companies to have minorities in there, Asians, black Americans. How many venture capital companies do we see, even in North Carolina, which that have that representation? So all across the board and, and boards of companies. I absolutely. It, yeah. uh,
0: the representation is key. You mentioned inclusion and we're actually seeing inclusion, signs of inclusion around our nation, murals, monuments going up, monuments coming down, changes to street signs. But um, Dr. McCoy, I want to ask you, uh, when it comes to reconciliation and repair, what should that look like? And, and Certainly feel free to talk about the report that you did that kind of speaks to some of the things that Steve mentioned in terms of um, inclusion and PPE, uh, the, the, the COVID money that came out, and where that's really going and as is it actually helping uh, the black businesses that it's supposed to. I know that's a lot, but...
2: No problem. I, th- I think both Patrick and uh, and Steve um, made very great points about, um, you know, there's a difference in diversity, inclusion, and equity, and equity is so, so important. We have to really look at not just this moment in time, but over time, how are public sector um, actors investing capital into different communities? How does that then have a long-term impact? We know that that policy can land very differently on different groups, and historically what has happened is we've seen issues, uh, recessions like we, you know, the pandemic, um, the Great Session, when policy comes out, it's not always distributed equally, and that can um, not only you know create some some significant hardships in the moment where you're trying to survive, as we've seen with this um, current situation, where so many black businesses shut down during this pandemic, but it can also actually exacerbate issues, and so it's not just about. You know, this moment in time, it's about also how do these policies, how do these investments uh, impact these different gaps? And we've seen that policy can actually increase uh, racial wealth gaps. And I've, I've been able to, um, you know, spend a lot of time looking across the United States at really how policies have impacted and really. You know, people always talk about best practices, but really wherever I go, uh, we see the same dynamic. We see, um, you know, whites very much at the top. Uh, We see um, generally speaking African-Americans and Latinos at the bottom. And so we really have to look at how do we change that and how do we make sure that the policies that are coming out really are taking into account the history and the the nature of our country. And so I just think it's incredibly important to understand that, uh, as Steve mentioned, with the payroll protection program that we've, uh, that That we've recently had as part of the pandemic, it went out in very um, uh, inequitable ways and it actually in a lot of ways uh, increased some of the racial gaps that we have in the United States.
0: That's really interesting. um Patrick, you know what has you what have you witnessed in terms of the distribution of funds and equity and and really our preparedness as a nation um, for the substantive changes that are going to be required for equitable distribution, and, and to achieve racial equity?
3: Yeah, it's, it's really going to take uh, three things. One, I always say you've got to identify what problem it is you're working to solve. You have to cultivate the relationships in order to solve the problems. So you've got to mobilize to come up with a plan and a strategy to create change. And one of the things that, as that you look at, we come out of this pandemic, the unemployment rate for the majority of the country is 6%. 6%. Uh, for Black America, it's still close to 10%. And so one of the things that we really have to come up with from a public policy standpoint is looking at how do we make sure that uh, participation and equity from a standpoint of whether you're working with a uh, small business, a large company, uh, or you, you have some opportunities to do business with the, with the government, how do we make that process a little bit more meaningful and streamlined? It's a complex process. Let's be frank. There are millions of companies uh, that pursued uh, payroll protection resources. They really didn't need them. They didn't need it. And I think that was a short sighted view from a public policy standpoint. I understand the United States government has one of the most amazing economic systems in the world because we have the ability to do what? We have the ability to deficit spend. So anytime we need capital, uh, we cut on the machine and we print the money and we produce checks. And so I think when When Black America sees that, or any minority community sees that, and they still recognize that we're struggling to get the resources to the people that need it, especially our small business owners, I think they scratch their heads. And so I think we've got to identify what is the problem we really want to solve. There's great opportunities to create more goals for minority participation in government contracting. But, Deborah, in order for this to work, it's really going to take public-private partnerships. I love it when the private sector and the public sector work together. And when, when we work together, there's nothing we can't achieve, and we need to come up with that strategy specifically for Black America.
0: Well, in addition to recognizing the history in Tulsa, Biden used the occasion to highlight his administration's plan to address legacy racial inequities through initiatives outlined in his plan to build back better.
1: Because today we're announcing two expanded efforts targeted toward black wealth creation that will also help the entire community. The first is, my administration has launched an aggressive effort to combat racial discrimination in housing. That includes everything from redlining to the cruel fact that a home owned by a black family is too often appraised at a lower value than a similar home owned by a white family. Second, small businesses are the engines of our economy and the glue of our communities. As President, my administration oversees hundreds of billions of dollars in federal contracts for everything from refurbishing decks of aircraft carriers to installing railings in federal buildings to professional services. We have a thing called — I won't go into it all, but there's not enough time now — but I'm determined to use every taxpayer's dollar that is assigned to me to spend going to American companies and American workers to build — that build American products. And as part of that, I'm going to increase the share of the dollars the federal government spends to small, disadvantaged businesses, including black and brown small businesses. Right now, it calls for 10 percent. I'm going to move that to 15 percent. Of every dollar spent will be
0: spent or President Biden later in the week submitted a $6 trillion budget proposal for congressional approval, which outlines additional targeted areas of spending to address racial inequity. Steve, you know, how would you analyze this plan, the $6 trillion plan that sounds like a lot of money, but in the grand scheme of things, it might not be.
4: Well, I think it's a good start. Deb, I mean, I think we could always do more, but you know, here we are 100 years after Greenwood, and only 44% of Black Americans own homes compared to 75% White Americans. So the data clearly shows that redlining, you know, increasing home ownership. Uh, I I like the small business, which I spoke about earlier. Uh, the other things I like is that you know the 213 billion in affordable housing. Uh, to create 2 million units for affordable housing the 45 billion for clean water infrastructure which would actually enable reduce lead in many of these minority communities highways 15 billion to address communities where highways have come in and stripped these black uh, communities these wall streets right these communities and uh you know just you know, education you know HBCUs Uh, increasing, uh, you know, forgiving student debt, which he doesn't really talk about, but I think that's important, making community colleges free. I think we have to do more, but the beautiful thing, in my opinion, uh, is that proclamations and resolutions and protests and rallies and discussions are not enough. Real change is going to happen by policies. And I think that this president is taking the bull by the horn and saying, look, we've got to invest. We've got to invest so that we don't have... Inequities, And the final thing I'll say is health care, you know, the $400 billion Medicaid expansion, focusing on bias training. All of these things are going to help these disenfranchised communities and rebuild um, the, this, this, these minority groups and minority communities so we can be equal again.
0: Dr. McCoy, um, kind of distilling down uh, from this this large budget proposal, which still, still has to be approved, how do uh communities, cities make sure that there are substantive changes um and that you know the policies actually get followed and enacted? What do they need to look like?
2: Well you really have to be in, intentional about this. I do think I, I agree with Steve. I think it's a it's a it's a great start. But I also think it's, it's just a start, right? I mean, these issues that we're facing are systematic issues. Uh, they didn't ha- happen overnight. They won't be solved overnight. Um, they also didn't happen from one or two actions. They happen from a litany of actions. And so a litany of actions have to come about in order to, to change them. Uh, and I think we also have to recognize that, you know, just as we've seen, uh, increasing discussion around racial equity and, and how it's invested. We've also seen a rise of opposition against that. and so we have to um, be cognizant of you know, what kind of opposition will come about when we talk about this. I think uh, you know Patrick spoke to a, um, you know, in a great way that it also has to include private partnerships, right? You have to be able to use these public dollars to spur private dollars, uh, um, because you know we have a multi-trillion-dollar economy as a as a nation, as a world, and, and the black community has to be a key part of that. And so, I think it's very important that we are intentional about this. The other thing I say about um, you know disinvestment is that you know when you look at it and you break it down, I think certainly the idea of closing the wealth gap is so important because closing the wealth gap. Uh, is a you know a foundation of closing all the other gaps, uh, whether it be education, whether it be health, um, housing, things of that nature. But part of the challenge is that we like to think about the idea of snapping our fingers and seeing change, but um, black community, the black community has been left out for so long and put on the sidelines that we do have to upbuild the community in order to even be able to absorb these dollars in significant ways. And so I think policy has to speak to that and we have to be realistic, but we have to keep investing um, for, for many, many years to come.
0: And Patrick, uh, when it comes to uh, the self-determination aspect, I know the one, one th- thing that uh, President Biden talked about is the importance of lifting up black businesses and making investments there. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about that actually being able to extend to um, the broader African-American community and help lift up the entire community when, when these dollars are uh, coming to help black businesses?
3: Right. Well, I, I love the question. If you look at my background, there's a picture of my mother in the 19 uh, late 50s and 60s, and we had one of the first black-owned uh, restaurants in uh, Southwest Arkansas, in Hope, Arkansas, to be exact. And one of the things that I love about the picture, because there's a little girl who thinks about what what's possible, and, and it starts with creating jobs. And so to your question, Deborah, it, no one president can have a $2 trillion proposal, and that immediately change the lives of Black America. It's going to take local small businesses for us to create ownership opportunities in our community. We've got to get back to the Black Wall Street model where we have ownership and we create jobs. But we do that by starting our own businesses. How do we start our own businesses? It takes three things. It takes money. It takes people and it takes time. And so when you talk about access to capital to start these businesses, it's great to have a $2 trillion infrastructure plan. I think it's a very comprehensive plan. As someone who grew up in rural Arkansas, uh, I can understand the need for broadband in a meaningful way, Uh, to all across parts of the country. But we really got to change the narrative, not just investing in infrastructure bridges and water and sewer and electric grids. We got to really change the narrative to say, what can the government do with the private sector to make sure that the access to capital that our communities need to create jobs. There's a lot of great ideas in all of our communities, but the biggest challenge is that a lot of these uh, entrepreneurs don't have access to capital. And so the, the federal government needs to really lean in and how do we encourage these pools of capital uh, to make sure that these opportunities are equal for all of our communities.
0: Steve, do you think that there's a, a strong enough understanding about that importance that, that Patrick just talked about? Um, enough so that they would actually support this legislation and support this budget?
4: Uh, In terms of just getting support from the Republican side, you know, unfortunately it's not looking really good in terms of getting those votes because, you know, the Republicans uh, led by Senator McConnell and others are saying that, well, infrastructure is just the roads and the bridges, not the investments like Patrick is talking about, capital access, ownership, uh, you know, investment in families. And so I, I think, The only good thing is reconciliation. So, you know, the Democrats can pull this off with 51 votes in the Senate. But I think it's better for the American people to have bipartisan support. You know, when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act legislation, this was a great step forward for America. This is what we can do. I think it sends a strong message to our country and the world what this nation stands for. But I I don't think it's going to be a bipartisan bill, which is very unfortunate. And the only thing I'll add is cities can do a lot. Local governments, uh, I serve on the League of Municipalities Task Force. Uh, cities, there's a recommendations you can review at the nclm.org site. But cities can develop anti-racist policies at the local level, have chambers of commerce having these conversations so that we can go dig down even deeper into our local community. But uh, to answer your question, I don't think the votes are there, but I think the president's going to make this
0: happen. Well, it all remains to be seen. This year has taken its toll on the mental health of all of us and in view of racial justice efforts for certain Black people in every space. This past week, tennis champion Naomi Osaka, number two in the world, made a mental health power play when she withdrew from the French Open after being fined $15,000 for making good on her decision not to attend post-game press conferences. In a tweet, Osaka said, I think now the best thing for the tournament the other players and my well being is that I withdraw so that everyone can get back to focusing on the tennis going on in Paris. The truth is that I have suffered long bouts of depression since the U.S. Open in 2018, and I have had a really hard time coping with that. Now, Osaka has dual Japanese and American citizenship, plays under the Japanese flag, and was born of a Japanese mother and Haitian father. Um, And I I think it's important to say also that she gained some attention also by wearing masks that bore bore the names of people who had died uh, in these social justice um, um, efforts, not not efforts, but names like Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. So she gained notoriety there, having come out online, uh, kind of making a statement in silence. And she says that she's an introvert. Dr. McCoy, you know, do you think that it's fair that people are kind of, you know, judging her right now? Do you think it was a power play on her part?
2: Well, I think it certainly um, uh, was a power play on her part because she took control of her own um, uh, her own narrative. Uh, it's so important to, to, to really, um, you know, Pay respect to individuals that understand where they are. Um, we all love to be entertained. We love to watch folks, uh, you know, uh, run up and down courts and things of that nature. But these are real people, and for her to say that she's been battling with depression uh, and the, the kind of spotlight that is on a, you know, number two um, tennis champion, um, a, a person of color, um, black and, and Japanese, it's, it's got to be incredible. And so I, I actually applaud her for her decision to take control of her own mental health.
0: And Steve, I know you can relate because you're a tennis player, but but that obligation to you know have the presence of mind and and be able to face the press, how you know how fair is that? Um, to require that of athletes?
4: Well, I think, first of all, it just shows you that um, I, we pray for Naomi Osaka as a former college player and uh, you know junior tennis player. I think uh, she was such a great asset to the sport. and But it all changed for her as a young girl hitting forehands and backhands to beating the greatest all-time player in the history of women's tennis, Serena Williams. And then, her life was never the same. And I think the United States Tennis Association, the ATP tour, they need to provide better mentoring and services to these athletes because you can go from a young child to becoming a pro player. And you know, we have phobias in life and one phobia is speaking with people, understanding how to deal with the media. It's never gonna change. It is a requirement to speak to the press, but I think it just became so overwhelming with all the other issues she was taking on, in addition, wearing the mask, taking on issues of social justice. And, you know, when you look at the end of the day, you know, Rafa Nadal, Roger Federer, before that, Andre Agassi, the Williams sisters, these are multi-million dollar emp- empires, and they have built very, very good teams that are providing the support. So their careers have been 20, 25 years. But if you read Andre Agassi's book, Open, uh, it was very clear he suffered from mental health issues, left the sport for a while. I hope Naomi Osaka reaches out to Andre Agassi because he left the sport and then he reclaimed the number one title in the world, winning the French Open, his fourth major title. So, uh, but I think it's just a lot yeah. to deal with. Let at me such get a young you in age.
0: here. Let me get you in here too, Patrick. You know, as as athletes of color. Um, stepping out do, do you think that they have a special pressure on them just simply as athletes of color in terms of representation and social justice plus just being you know stellar at the game
3: well we you know we have an enormous amount of expectations on all of our athletes and, and in particular in the black community we, we see our athletes and entertainers as, as our leaders in some regard. But the, the the bigger reality is this, you know, there's always the greatest hits that everyone has always seen. The question becomes, you know, is it mandatory for professional athletes to be required to do the press conference with the media? That's really fundamentally what the question is. And what I like about this, this moment is that she's saying, I am not built for that, that it takes too much out of me to have to sit here and answer these questions. We've all seen the greatest hits of Alan Iverson when he says, practice, we're talking about practice. I mean, that went around for decades about how he was feeling at that moment. And that is an example of what that type of environment does for okay. professional athletes, whether they should or shouldn't, uh, is debatable. It's a delicate balance. Certainly but the more is a the delicate balance.
0: I'm sorry to have to cut you off, but we have run out of time. And I just appreciate each of you for coming out. I want to thank our roundtable, Patrick, Hannah, Steve Rao, and Dr. Henry McCoy for being with us today. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org/slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thanks for Watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.